a really quick and exciting announcement to make. The Menopause and Cancer podcast is now also on YouTube, and I'm so excited that more people now get to watch our conversations. So the link to the YouTube channel is in our show notes. Please go and subscribe to the channel so that more people who need to hear our conversations are able to find them. Thank you. Hi, I'm Danny Bennington and welcome to my podcast. This podcast is for anyone who's been affected by cancer and menopause. I'll be speaking to special guests and menopause experts to help us find solutions to our symptoms and of course, address the greater picture. We're going to talk about everything from mental health to physical health, sexual health to bone health and everything in between. Nothing is off limits, welcome. so excited to dive into today's episode. Welcome to Menopause After Cancer. Managing a menopause after a cancer diagnosis brings with it a heap of physical and psychological symptoms. We all know that, many of which can be discussed much more openly than others. Our sexual desires, for example, our loss of libido, difficulty to become aroused, painful sex, and so much more is often not spoken about. What is normal and what can I do if I don't like my new normal? In this episode, we will focus less on all the things that we can do to support our vaginal health, but more on finding support and ideas to improve our sexual health. And we will also explore the word desire and what does it mean to you? We'll dive deep into sexuality and what it could possibly even mean to us and how we can bring a little bit more sex lives into our lives without actually having any sex. We'll explore. So my guest for this episode is registered psychosexual and relationship therapist and certified psychosexologist, Kate Moyle. I'm so excited to be chatting to her. Kate specializes in working with those that are struggling with difficulties with their sex lives and sexuality, including many people in their 20s and 30s. Kate recognizes that our understanding of sexuality and sexual health is personal to each of us. And I can't wait to dive into this episode with her now. Hi, Kate. Hi. Uh, lovely to chat to you today. Thank you. Um, I was just saying um, when we were chatting, it's a lovely sunny day for us. Yeah, for us uh, English folk who are used to grey yeah. skies, it's absolutely gorgeous. Today. <laughs> exactly. Kate, you're a registered psychosexual and relationship therapist and a certified psychosexologist. And I will ask you what that is in a moment. And you specialize working with those that are struggling with difficulties with their sex lives and sexuality, and including many in their 20s and 30s. And so you're a wealth of knowledge. I can't wait <laughs> back to you. Well, we'll see. Hopefully I won't disappoint. <laughs> <laughs> you say in your own words, difficulties in our sexual and intimate lives and relationships are much more common than we think. And this is simply because we don't know how to talk about them and why they happen. As a society, we don't know how or learn how to talk about sex. And I think that is so powerful. Mm. Um, you're also the host of the Sexual Wellness Sessions podcast, and it's a brilliant podcast. Mm, thank um, you. So everyone head over and listen to Kate Moyle Dare. Can you tell me what a certified psychosexologist is and how you came to do what you do? <laughs> yeah, it's a, a mouthful. You don't want to get it all in the wrong order as well. <laughs> it's just what exactly. I do on a regular basis. So 
basically a psychosexologist is someone that studies, examines, works with sex and relationships. And it was a European qualification that I did a couple of years ago, basically to support my practice, my therapy practice. And it was a way for me of understanding things from a more medicalized model. So it was essentially um, like a course and an exam that we went and sat in Europe where psychologists and doctors were learning alongside each other. And so it was the most up-to-date research in, in medicine, really, in sexual medicine. But for me, it all ties into this model, which is what we call a biopsychosocial model of working with sex, which is what I do which understands that sex is not just physical, not just psychological, but also impacted by culture. So we, we literally see this combination that's coming together of biology, psychology, and our social lives, our culture, creating our models of sex, our ideas of sex, our sexual experiences. And when we look through one lens, so just the medical, we miss all the rest. When we look through just a social lens, we miss the medical. So we need all these different aspects because sex is something which has so much meaning and different meaning to all of us. Yeah. And I was saying to you earlier, I before I went to yoga this morning, I quickly put a post out in two of my Facebook groups. One is for people who are after a cancer diagnosis in menopause and one is a perimenopause and menopause chat hub. And I posted, that I'd be talking to you and what people thought or if they had question. And one question is exactly relating to what you've just said. And this particular person said, I can't separate the physical loss of libido and the psychological impact of my changed body. I don't know what to work on and what to do first. That's mm. exactly what you've just said, isn't it? Mm. Um, I came out of yoga to a flood of messages. You know, often when you speak about sex, especially with people who've had a cancer diagnosis and they're finding themselves in menopause, sex often is at the end of all of their problems. Mm. But it's this big black cloud hanging over you. Yes, it's not life-threatening, yeah, but it's this thing that keeps nagging at us in the back of our head and it changes so much our relationships and so much. And um, I guess in today's episode, I don't want to talk just about the treatments. I will have okay. other episodes on that, like HRT, loops, vaginal moisturizers, uh, vaginal estrogen, testosterone. All of these have a place in helping with loss of libido. I really want to know from you, sex life is different. Yeah. When we hit perimenopause, menopause, with or without a cancer diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think- Where are um... we going wrong? Are we going wrong? <laughs> Where we're going wrong is that we don't have the education to set us up to understand what's going on. And what you just said there was something that I talked about on a Trek stock panel called Lifting the Lid. There was um, an amazing group of us, Brian from the organization Sex with Cancer, Sam from Joe Devine, who are an amazing sex web platform, Lauren, um, who's got her own experience of having had breast cancer. And we, I think the, the message that I got out of that and the thing that it felt like everyone was saying was we don't feel like we have the space to talk about sex when we have survived cancer, when we've got through treatment, when we, we don't feel 
like we can ask our doctors because they've done all the important stuff and we are still here to tell the tale and sex feels like an afterthought or the less important bit or that I am so lucky to have got through this and I shouldn't take any more of my doctor's time because they need to help someone else, the next me. And that is emphasized even more than in certain groups, for example, cancer patients particularly. And we see that all treatment can affect sex lives, whatever cancer, but particularly pelvic cancers, breast cancers, hormone-dependent cancers can have a real impact. But that sits in the context of the wider lack of conversation around it in general. That sits in the context of this kind of gap, black hole where sex should be. And we see that certain things get blamed. People love to point the finger at certain things like porn or, you know, various areas of the media. But actually the biggest problem we have is the education bit. And the education is what facilitates the conversation. And so menopause particularly thrilled to be seeing so much information kind of coming forward at the moment and people like Louise Newton and Davina you know big profile people really pushing the conversation I just interviewed Liz O'Riordan and Dr Hannah Short on my podcast all about induced menopause and they are incredibly knowledgeable women in this space and actually they are both fantastic because they are both doctors who have their own experiences of being through induced menopause. So for me, their take on it was amazing. But the fact that menopause is getting a lot of attention at the moment, having a moment shouldn't be a thing. It should already be a part of the conversation. It should be integrated in. So it's a huge positive thing. But the fact that we're having, we're describing it as having a moment is crazy, given that it's such an integral part of women's health. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> about 40 years 50 years late isn't it <laughs> so when I put those Facebook messages out today in those two different groups and I walked out of yoga opened my phone and oh, there they were and it was such a sunny day I felt so clouded and really sad and upset mm. reading all the messages and and actually both messages whether it was people sharing in the non-cancer community they were equally as upsetting and they're yeah. equally struggling and I think I've had breast cancer myself, and I know from many people who've gone through cancer, they might not think that hormone replacement therapy is an option for them, or they're told it's not advised. And so they think, oh, if I could just take HRT, I could get on top of all my symptoms, including mm -hmm. my sex drive and my loss yeah. of libido. But also speaking to so many women who aren't in that camp and who might be on HRT, I know that isn't always the, the truth for them either, the case either. So I just want to share that with everyone who is listening mm. after a cancer diagnosis it's really difficult even if you haven't had cancer absolutely and that dr hannah short who i just interviewed is a doctor in this area and said that herself she said i thought that i would be able to take hrt and it would just sort out my estrogen levels and that everything else would work itself out she was like i genuinely thought that and she's a really educated expert in this area yes. Yes. And I think it was a really powerful thing that she said, actually, because mm. the conversation then was, well, if if you were thinking that and you know a lot about this, what about your average person who isn't educated about this? And I think that we, we do women such a disservice by not having these conversations and sex changes and our bodies change. And particularly as women, we, you know, we see we go through cycles, not just across our lifetime, but monthly 
and we go through these stages, you know, puberty, whether it's trying to conceive pregnancy, postnatal, perimenopause, menopause, post postmenopause, you know, we go through these stages where our bodies change. And what we should be saying to people is sex also changes and that that might be reflected by the changes that you're going through in your life. It might not be, and it's going to hit some people harder than others. It's going to be down to individual differences, hormones, context, health. There's so much so, going on. So my expectation was from when I became sexually active, I will always be this sexually active. Mm-hmm. That I never thought that anything how I was in my early 20s would change, that a long-term yeah. relationship should change. I would always have the same desire to my partner's and I really realized that that is such a false expectation mm. that is without illness thrown into the mix. People have relationship issues. People have financial difficulties, all the other life stressors. So do you think expectations is even bef- is part of that communication, how we talk about it? Oh, massively. I think expectations set us up to be disappointed when it comes to sex a lot of the time. And a colleague of mine called Dr. Karen Gurney wrote an incredible book called Mind the Gap and her TED Talk on Desire is brilliant. She was the first guest on the first series of my podcast talking about desire. And she is the expert in this area. But you know what is one of the fundamental things that she says is desire changes in long-term relationships and that is normal. You know, desire changes. And also we don't understand desire correctly we're told that desire is all spontaneous that we get turned on and we jump our partners like it happens in the movies and that's what sex should look like she would argue that it is rarer in a long-term relationship to feel that way than it is to never feel spontaneous desire and what we actually are talking about is responsive desire which is the desire that we can trigger, that we can create the context for. But so many of us spend our lives and our relationships sitting there being like, okay, well, I'll feel turned on at some point and then I'll do something about it. And the reality is we could be waiting for the rest of our lives. Yeah. <laughs> but why, why, are we, why are we only told one version of the story? Can we hold that thought? Because I want to really, really dive a little bit deeper about what if you're not even turned on? Like I have had messages... I absolutely have no sex drive whatsoever. I've been single for years, so I haven't had to worry about a partner. I've become a washed out, dried up spinster. It's upsetting. This woman is in her late 40s. Well, what's sad about that? No desire. Sorry, one more. No desire, but also don't want to have a sexless marriage in my 40s. But how to Mm. make sex feel less clunky when spontaneity is no longer. So almost having to schedule sex in, which is a turnoff really in itself. Mm. So this lady, this was the lady who said she's really hoping, obviously, to get that spontaneity back. What you've just said is let's not wait for spontaneity. We need to make it happen, right? Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, both of those things, you know, the thing that the thing that hurts about hearing, you know, that we empathize with hearing those kind of things is it feels like the tone of those messages is that those people don't want it to be that way. And as a psychosexual therapist, that's the group I'm working with, the people who want to make changes. We know there are plenty of people that have what we would define as sexless relationships or don't have sex, don't have desire, and it's fine. And they're happy with it and it's not a problem for them. And I think it's really important we say that because 
this is not, you know, what we're never saying is there's a one size fits all to this conversation. There's a one size fits all approach to sex because some people don't like sex, don't enjoy sex and they are in relationships where that's fine. Mm. And I think the first point was, you know, the phrase like dried up spinster for me is really, that's quite like a laden narrative thing and also a very ingrained idea that the un, the desexualized woman is a dried up spinster rather than that there are hundreds of other things about her which are valuable and attractive and beautiful. And the other thing that it assumes is that a sex life has to be with someone else. And something that we talk about a lot of sexologists and psychosexual therapists is that you can have a sexual relationship with yourself. And if you don't want a sexual one, you can have a sensual one. And it's not a requirement to have a partner for you to have pleasure, sensuality, those enjoyable experiences in your life. So I think there are a couple of things to address. And the majority of the people in my community feel that their sex life has changed because of menopause, because of cancer or a combination of the two. Mm -hmm. And when you really dig a little bit deeper, so when I ask myself all of those questions, I think I realized that I'd never really discovered my real sexuality before all of this has happened to me. Mm -hmm. So I was 33 when I was diagnosed with breast cancer, 39 when my ovaries came out, thrown into surgical menopause. But really, did I ever really discover my own sexuality? I don't know, Kate. Mm. And I think perhaps this is also true for many. Yeah, definitely. I think that's absolutely true for so many because, because we don't have that conversation and actually the most common feeling associated with struggles with sex is I'm the only one that feels this way yeah what that does is it makes us feel shame it makes us feel embarrassment and what those feelings do is they stop us from reaching out asking for help asking questions speaking to our friends seeking advice because those emotions are designed to keep us quiet they thrive in silence and so we have this kind of vicious circle of lack of education creates emotional challenges with exploring the problem, which would be the solution to not having the education would be like exploring and working it out yourself. And then we have that, which keeps us silent. And then we have that, which is isolation. And then the isolation is something which really can impact someone's self-esteem, self-confidence, dating, relationships, has such a ripple effect into the rest Mm. of our lives. Mm, Absolutely. And it is weird, isn't it? Because after I posted today, I had as many messages in my private DMs as I had on the post underneath the main Facebook thread Mm -hmm. of people saying to me, this is, I'm, I'm ashamed we don't talk about it. And I want to read one to you a bit later in the conversation, if that's okay. So let's talk about what we think sex is. And maybe if anyone is listening to this, it's a good question. What is sex to you? If you're sitting at home, if you're out walking, if you're cooking and you're listening to Kate and me chat, what is sex to you? I said to you earlier, just a couple of weeks ago, I bought a book for my teenage daughters and my nieces. I think I'm the only one reading it. (laughs) (laughs) And um, it's sex ed an inclusive teenage guide to sex and relationships. And there's lots of things I'm learning. I'm in my 40s. Mm. I'm learning sex is not just PIV, penis in vagina. And so what is sex? So I'm sure everyone has their own definition. I just, you know, I have my 
own definitions, but what do you, what is it from your point of view? I think the thing that we've always been told that sex is, is intercourse. And yeah. it's that reproductive biology basic model. For a start, it's really heteronormative. So it excludes a whole community of people that don't have both a penis and a vagina in their relationships. It is pretty ableist. Some people aren't able to have that type of sex. Some people don't like that type of sex. Some people, it's not their preference. So we've got that as a framework already. What I think sex is, is about someone having a sexual experience, which for them offers satisfaction, pleasure, fun, connection, whatever they want it to offer, but that there's communication, that it's consensual, that it's pleasurable. And really that's what I said at the start when I said sex can mean so many things for different people. And I think this idea of sex being slightly fluid is also a part of it. We can see that one couple might have different types of sex completely across their lifetimes. So it might be sometimes they have a quickie, sometimes one person would like an orgasm, so they just go and masturbate themselves, that it's really loving sex, that they're trying to conceive, that they are grieving, that they are on holiday, that you know we have mm. all these different types of sex, but we just have a very limited view of it. Yeah. Yeah. And for me also, we talk about sex as pleasurable, sensual, experiential, we can have, for some reason, even though the clue is in the name, we've discounted oral sex. I mean, the clue yeah. is in the, it, oral sex. Yeah. Um, you know, mutual masturbation, touching, and there are plenty of ways for people to have intimate, sexual, pleasurable experiences without a penis going in a vagina. Yeah. So that's really interesting, isn't it? Because I think for so many people, it's literally being in bed with a partner and giving each other pleasure. Mm -hmm. And I think as I define as female, as a woman, I guess sex to me was always a bit more celebrated when it happens to men. Even when I had my kids and my friends' kids had little boys, it was always quite funny when they had their little willies, you know, <laughs> had a life of their own when they were little boys none of that was really celebrated as much for girls. Mm. Um, so it almost starts for me even earlier than just redefining what it is. As this society expects different things from different people, maybe, I wonder. I think definitely. And I think the most, the most commonly associated feeling with sex that we are reared with, so to speak, or the most common... Um, how do I phrase this? The basically, shame and sex are probably the most commonly associated mm, things. Yeah. So the most commonly associated feeling with sex is shame. And I think there is a lot that particularly leans towards that being the case more for women. Even things like the fact that we don't label female sexual anatomy correctly. We call the vulva the vagina most of the time. I know. Now, yeah. How are we meant to teach our young women to understand the signs of vulval cancer mm. or to understand period pains or what's going on for them when they're calling their vulva a vagina. And actually the vagina is the elastic canal, the internal canal that goes from the neck of the womb, the cervix down to the labia, down to the opening. And the vulva is the external 
genitals, but even colloquially, people say oh vagina, but they don't mean vagina. And that's that's like a basic, a basic flaw. And the Eve Appeal do amazing work to encourage people to start using the right language and to get to know their bodies. But fundamentally, those things are a big part of this. You know, the clitoris wasn't included in medical texts for years. It's always been there. And that is a big part of it because women's pleasure was left out of the education about sex. Like for me, women's pleasure was never spoken about in sex education. It was, this is how you get pregnant, don't get pregnant, don't get STIs. That's it, done. Yeah. So... This is a nice little challenge for anyone listening. If you are listening, how many female parts (laughs) can you name correctly? Do you know your vagina from your vulva, your outer labia from your inner labia, your clitoris? It's quite interesting. And if you don't, like the Aoife Peel has great images as well, hasn't been. Mm. So I speak to people who don't want it to be that case. They want it different, quite clearly from the messages I've read out to you. There is sadness. I felt sad reading a lot of the messages you speak to people who want it to be different what Mm -hmm. if I am sat at home and I have no desire but I'd like to have desire I've already started to redefine after listening to you now about maybe what sex is how do I get back into it or how do I start Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Um, how long have you got I've got a list of resources in my head I think the first thing is thinking about how we understand desire so the first thing for me is if you want to make a change to your sex life don't focus on doing the change the first step is thinking about it because we are given a really limited kind of tunnel vision view of sex and the biggest problem is that is that we all think, oh, that's all there is to see. And no one says any different because a lot of how we learn about sex is really invisible. It's kind of implicit. It's implied. It's not like there's like a rule book that we're given. And so a lot of it is based on social narratives and messages and what's going on. So the first thing is to kind of take your education into your own hands and learn about what desire actually means. The book I mentioned earlier, Mind the Gap, um, Dr. Karen Gurney's TED Talk, the first episode on my podcast is with her on desire. Still one of the most listened to, even though I've done three seasons of the podcast now, that one is still potentially the most listened to. And how we think about desire is the first thing, because for me, if we are feeling like we don't have desire, and we feel that is a negative thing, that we are in some way broken or damaged or not good enough, or it's a problem, or our partner should you know, want to leave us, or we're ruining our relationship. That is loaded with negativity, and that is not a good place to start, because why would you then want to try and push something which makes you feel bad? Sex is a motivation. If we like it, we want to do it more. And that's part of this. And then the next thing we have to think about is, okay, so if I've been told it's spontaneous all the time and we have this thing about spontaneous sex, we seem to think that it is the best type of sex. And that's because we have phrases like honeymoon period, the start of relationship, everyone's having more sex than they would have done. But actually what people argue is that 
when we are at the start of a relationship, there are just a lot more opportunities for responsive desire to occur. And we have the spontaneous desire we have, but we have lots of reasons for it. Lots of eye contact, lots of flirting, lots of touching. We are excited about seeing someone. We're exploring together. We're curious. We're getting to know them. All of those things which make desire thrive and kind of put sex at the forefront of our minds. We are playful. We are doing all the things which really encourage that feeling of desire. And then as we settle into relationships, we kind of do less of those things because life gets in the way and we start to see our partner in another way. They're not this kind of perfect version that we saw at the start and neither are we, you know, this isn't a one way street, but that stuff starts to kind of kick in because that's the reality of what daily life relationships are like. And so then we do things which are building bridges or making connections. And we have to encourage that. Again, Esther Perel, who is the kind of world thought leader on sex and relationships, she's basically our queen in our world, talks about this idea of eroticism. How do we nurture eroticism in our relationships? How can we, we have two kids running around and we are looking at the state of the house and we're getting back from work and we're thinking about what we need to do for the next day. And we, you know, are struggling with our mental health. How do we make space for sex in all and of I'm, that? I'm going to add to this that our bodies have often changed after cancer treatment. We mm-hmm. might be without hair, with added scars. We might be feeling really fatigued, really scared, scared for a recurrence, scared for our life to end. All of that on top of what you've already said. Mm-hmm. And then we expect romanticism to, and throw ourselves into bed. It's, <laughs> it's almost mad, isn't it? And what you've just said is thinking that it should just be spontaneous. One person emailed and said, this has been going on for some time now, but it got brushed under the carpet. My husband drops hints, bless him, but the more he drops them, the more irritating it gets. Mm -hmm. I'm so tired from a normal day waiting for our teen to go to bed. And so I think she just hasn't got room for that. Mm-hmm. But also the hints bad for it, right? Yeah. The hints, yeah. The hints make partners feel under pressure, and all couples do it. Everybody, most people could tell you that they know what their partner's hints are, that they know when their partner's in the mood, or there's like a certain thing that they do. Everyone has these little languages, these little kind of snippets or moves, whatever you want to describe them as. But the minute we feel under pressure, and we see this all the time, that people he might not even be struggling with sex, but don't feel open to sex for various reasons, whether it's a change of body confidence, whether it's not feeling turned on, it's feeling stressed, overwhelmed. Um, as you say, anything to do with health or treatment or postnatally or that your appearance has changed. We create avoidance strategies. So mm-hmm. our partner's going to bed and we say, oh, I'll just finish up some things down here and I'll be up in half an hour, hoping that they've gone to sleep by then. Or do you know what? I really fancy a bath. Or I've got to finish something for work. You know, we, we create those ways of not getting into the situations because a lot of us fear that if we indicate to our partners that we might be interested, that we're going to have to disappoint them. And that feels horrible. We don't want to hurt the person that we love. So we're managing expectations. So when you said one of the biggest feelings associated with sex is shame, guilt is one that comes up often when I speak to people who are in relationships and they don't want their sex drive to be low or mm. 
they often feel really guilty. And I hear it over and over again. We hear it so often that people say to us, but this is how I entered my relationship. This is how we got married. This is Mm -hmm. how I should, or I feel I should sustain it. I almost owe it to him, my partner. Mm. And I can totally understand how we would think like that. And I also hear that it's not right to feel like that. Definitely. And there was something that I heard in a podcast the other day, and it was, what do you miss when you're not having sex? And I think it was an amazing way of framing it because sex can mean so much. And people, particularly in stages where, for example, post-chemo or post-treatment, where sex also might not be possible for a variety of reasons or post-surgery, how can you get some of what you're missing from sex in another way. And I don't know why we aren't saying that to people as a basic premise. Is it that sex was a way that you felt really connected to your partner? And so could you lie on a bed facing each other and just talk or stroke? Or is it that you pulled away from all types of physical intimacy because you were scared that your partner might think, okay, if I snuggle up to them on the sofa, that it's going to lead to sex. So you don't even touch on the sofa anymore. Can we make that safe again? And I think that when we actually just break it down and say things like that to people, you'd find a lot of partners like, God, I get that we're not going to have sex at the moment. You know, I get that. I'm scared as well. I'm scared of hurting you. I'm scared about doing something wrong. How can we just stay close or stay connected or feel that we have something between us because what a lot of people describe as things like post-surgery post-chemo is they don't feel sexy they feel like they've lost that sense of their sexual self and something like breasts might have been a really sexual part of themselves you know nipples might have been really sensitive something that felt a really integral part of their sexual routine and now that is changed or different or gone or sensitivity has changed We see that people might struggle with orgasm more, that certain treatments can kind of feel like they reduce sensitivity or that people are so distracted by thinking about their bodies that they're not able to actually experience the physical sensations that are going on. Yeah, that totally makes sense. After my double mastectomy, I knew that I would lose sensation in Mm. my breast and around the whole nipple area, obviously. Um, But I never really sort of paid attention to it until it happens to you and you think, oh my gosh, I thought it really changes everything. Mm. Um, Yeah, and it takes a long time to get used to your new body, your new you. But that was so profound, what you just said. What would you miss if you wouldn't have sex? And I Mm. wonder if sometimes, if you had asked me this throughout my last 10 years, I wonder if often I would have said, nothing, Kate, (laughs) nothing. Mm-hmm. And if I could have just said nothing without then having guilt and shame put on me by myself, I would have been quite happy. <laughs> it would have been all right. But it didn't just s- sit there. And I couldn't, I didn't just leave it because I'm in a relationship. I am married. There is my partner I want to consider. I know we feel much closer. We feel, I almost feel like we're a better parental team as well when we have intimacy Mm. and so I didn't just answer it with nothing and moved on with the uh, with my days but it's a really 
good question, I think. It's a mm. really profound question, I feel. I've never heard it before. It's not my question either. It was yeah, um, it was on a good. podcast that I heard, so I can't take credit for it. Um, <laughs> I wish I had said it because but I mean, it's something that I will repeat a lot, I think, and something I will use a lot yeah. because we assume that sex just means one thing. And we see this in relationships for couples. Sex can be closeness, attraction, feeling desired, a way of communicating love and affection for one partner. And for another, it's kind of something that they're happy to do once a month with their partner, but it doesn't really mean that much. And then we get this clash of agendas, let's say, where one partner is saying, you know, I don't feel loved. I don't. And the other partner is saying, what are you talking about? You don't feel loved. We're in a long-term relationship. We do all this stuff together. We just went out for a dinner last week. We've got two beautiful kids. What's, what's wrong? Like we have a happy house. We talk loads. And the other partner is saying, but you never touch me. You never want to have sex with me. You never approach me. And they're talking almost two different languages. Yeah. And there is a theory called the five love languages, which fits into that quite well, where one of the love languages is physical touch. And that might be something that your listeners might be interested to do if they feel like that might be the case here, because it can help you to understand each other on different levels that you're on. And you can go onto the website and just do a quiz. But it's an important thing to also know that most couples have some level of mismatched desire. That most couples to start with, you know, aside from menopause, perimenopause, cancer, treatment, anything like that, don't start and stay in exactly the same place. Yeah. This lady said, it's very hard. I haven't had sex. I haven't had a sex drive for ages. It's definitely had an impact with me and my husband. We used to be so passionate and cuddled up and hold hands. Now we just have a go at each other. We're both frustrated in different ways. Mm. that's exactly what you're saying. It affects them both differently, this one situation. And why do we stop cuddling and holding hands? And Because that's not sex, isn't it? That's being close and intimacy in different ways. But I guess if that stops, then gosh, it's really hard to end up in bed together. Mm. <laughs> and it's, it's a two-way relationship because it stops because of the fear or the assumption that it might lead to sex. Yeah. And it's also one of the biggest things that then gets in the way of sex because it's cutting the ties or the opportunities for responsive desire. And the key to changing that is talking about it. Because if you said to your partner, do you know what? I'm actually really scared of sex at the moment. You know, I don't know how comfortable I feel about it. I am really worried it's going to hurt. I feel really self-conscious of my body. And we can feel self-conscious of our bodies in front of someone that we've been naked in front of for 20 years. Like that is totally plausible and realistic and normalizing. I, I think it's an important thing for us to normalize because it's, it's how they, we feel that they see us, but it's also how we see ourselves. And that can change yeah. with even just at the point of diagnosis. And we can also find that if we've been ill, that we feel like our care, our partner has gone into a more carer role and that doesn't make us feel sexy or make us feel good about ourselves or our partner's seen us at our weakest or our most vulnerable. Absolutely. I can hear so much in your language if we said this X, Y and Z to our partner. Mm. And I wonder whether 
that conversation doesn't actually happen. I mean, it might happen for you in the therapy room. I'm sure it happens. But I think back to my last 15 years as a married woman, there's so much unspoken or mm. for me. And I, there's, I'm sure there's many, so many things. Like if I, if I had just said, I'm just not feeling anything down there to my husband. Yeah. I just can't get that connection with my vagina, with my vulva. Nothing is happening. It's feeling totally disconnected. Mm-hmm. I don't want to have sex because I can't get myself into the swing of things. I think if I had said it, I would have really worried that I would have hurt his feelings because what if he thought it's he doesn't turn me on? Or mm. I wonder whether people feel that if they voiced what's going on, the other person in the relationship would think it's because of them. I think that's a massive part of it. And I think, I think going back a step, it's more normal to not talk about this stuff than it is to talk about it. You've got to remember, I talk about this every day yeah. for a living yeah. with people. Yeah. You know, this is, this is my job. I, I'm literally probably like a tenth of a percent of the people who can have these conversations because that's what I'm trained to do. But it is so hard to talk I think actually talking about sex is one of the hardest things to do when it comes to our sex life particularly with the person we're having sex with yeah and when I think what we can do is equip people and couples and you know saying perhaps with things like cancer treatment have you and your partner talked about sex even if it was a sheet of questions you could go home and talk about together or great idea a set of statements you know sex might feel different how do you feel about that? Or I feel, as you said, completely disconnected from my vulva, my vagina, anything from the waist down. It's just a no-go. You know, I don't want to go there myself. So why would I want you to go there? But I don't want to lose the connection I have with you. So what can we do? Yeah. Because that's the reframing. Is it that I don't want to pull away from you completely? So could we just cuddle in bed and it's still small for now but it's maintaining the connection could we try something like having a bath together or getting in the shower together or massage or these all sound cheesy enough but they are sensual things is it that we go for a walk and we hold hands or every time we go out together we hold hands or we sit next to each other on the sofa so our bodies are touching and they sound small we talk about them as sexual currency is what we call them basically anything that um, can improve sex that isn't sex. And I think that it's particularly relevant to the groups that you're discussing. And a group that I work with a lot are people who, for example, have had IVF or fertility problems or miscarriages. And it's a similar feeling, which mm-hmm. is that sex got broken pretty savagely and your definition of sex kind of gets ripped to shreds and ruined pretty quickly and how do I reclaim it rebuild it renegotiate that when quite honestly it's something I don't ever want to do again and I yeah sorry to interrupt mm. I just love the fact that you said it could also come from a healthcare professional because I know when I've had um, appointments with my breast care nurses or oncologist teams or my GP and you have so many appointments you talk about the side effects of your chemo. Women talk about the side effects of tamoxifen or Zodalex or any other medication that might put them into menopause. Mm. Oh my gosh, to just mention I've got low libido is probably the last thing anyone would do because somehow you think, well, there's nothing they can do anyway. Because if there was a pill, 
I'd know about it. So mm-hmm. there's no point in even talking about it if they can't help me. Yeah. But also on the I'm surviving here pecking order, it's pretty much further down the list. But if a breast care nurse had said to me in the early days, Danny, your sex life is going to change, whether that is with yourself or a partner, and we want you to know that's really normal. And here is a sheet, a fact sheet that you could take away. Gosh, I would have felt just understood. Just opens the door. Just opens the door, but also I wouldn't have thought it's just me and it's and yeah. I should be better or I should be doing better. Mm. And that would have just been really helpful. For anyone that feels like that, please, please, this isn't me just plugging my podcast because I could not be a part of the conversation. I would delete my bit and just give you their bit. Please go and listen to the episode on induced menopause with Dr. Liz O'Riordan and Dr. Hannah Short because... Yeah. This is exactly what they say. And they just say it so eloquently and in such an informed, educative, normalizing way. I can't sing their praises enough. They're both phenomenal. Yes, yeah. And we've got Hannah coming on to the podcast, actually. She's fabulous. So, And also you've mentioned a couple of other resources and the TED Talk. Will you be able to send me links and I can put them in the yeah, show definitely. notes? Yeah, definitely. That would be amazing. Um, one message said, absolutely no desire. Don't even think about it. I feel numb. Also unable to reach climax when we do try. Is it the tamoxifen? Is it the antidepressant? I've got no Scooby-Doo. Luckily, I've got a good husband who understands. Thank you for acknowledging this issue. I'm way too young to feel that way. Mm. So again, we feel excluded, don't we? Yeah. If, if sex isn't natural, normal, spontaneous, happening x y and z amount of times a week you climax we think it's wrong but what you've been saying what i've been hearing it's not wrong because sex can be so many different things and be different in our life Mm. anyway can't it absolutely and the reality is the medications might be having an impact and that's going to look different for everyone and we know that antidepressants can impact sex but again one of the things that we should be equipping to people equipping people with is it might change things for you but you can you know I often say to people treat it like a speed bump not a roadblock how do you go over it how do you go around it it might be that you need to try and do something differently is it that for example this person could benefit from trying something like sex toys which are higher have higher sensitivity or more intense um like more intense sensations that could help them is it that that's something they could play with their with their partner. So I often talk to people about getting a really simple handheld vibrator. Um, and I work with the sex toy brand Lilo and they make really great like high quality toys, but just even one of the basic ones, like a handheld simple vibrator and you incorporate it into a massage, like playing with it, running up, up and down each other's spines or, you know, down your limbs or across your bum. This isn't just a, again, penetrative or orgasm hunt it's a pleasure experience it's about exploring and it might be that you need to reframe things but it can also be fun for your partner and there are also lots of things that if you have a male partner and you don't feel like penetrative sex that you can use which kind of simulate the feeling of penetrative sex for them so there's something called a Mm. tenga egg Mm. which is imagine the kind of shape of a condom but it's of a really stretchy rubbery material and that can be another way of incorporating something different. And I think that a lot of the time, what couples lose is the sense of 
approaching each other with intention or approaching each other with desire or approaching each other with sexual attention or attraction. And that's what they miss more than the sex itself. Yeah. And you can get that in in different ways. But again, it helps a lot to talk about it first. So you're both on the same page. And maybe just from listening to you, how much of a relief would it be to our listeners who whose sex life has changed? They don't really want it to change, but if someone just gave them permission, mm. it is okay if it is as it is right now. Mm-hmm. Someone could just take the pressure off and say, it's fine, you're not alone. I'm trying. <laughs> it's okay. If you don't have sex for a year, if you talk about it with your partner, it's okay. Mm. Gosh, that would be quite a relief if we took those expectations and pressures, social pressures, our own pressures, relationship pressures off the conversation for a moment. Oh my God, yeah. I mean, there's a few of us that are desperately trying to do it in the UK. You know, we're banging the drum for this all the time. And it's filtering through, but it's slow. And it's both top down and bottom up. You know, we have to put the sex education system in place for our kids yeah and we have to then educate the generations that didn't have it and it's ingrained this kind of negative culture around sex or taboo culture around sex stigmatized culture around sex is very ingrained and it takes some unpicking but we can all do it on our own individual level Mm. but we have to be open to it I suppose or at least be curious Yeah. I want to read you a last message I had in my private messages. And the only reason I want to read it is for anyone listening to really know it's not just us. It's not just women in menopause or people in menopause after cancer. Hi, Danny, I'm sending you a question in response to your post, but feel too embarrassed to put it publicly. It's a subject not really talked about, but because sex is so infrequent now since 12 months of treatment and menopause, we have a plan when we might have sex. My husband then feels under pressure and because it all feels a bit clunky, he then struggles to maintain or even get an erection. And the reason I'm reading this, it's not just us, it's everyone. Mm -hmm. And if we understood that the majority of people have difficult thoughts around sex, desire, intimacy, we would really sort of feel a bit less alone, wouldn't we? We really would. This is not an uncommon experience and it's something I've heard from people in the cancer community people who are trying to conceive people whose partners have had miscarriages um, who are having IVF you know sex becomes pressurized for me the first thing I'd be saying to this couple if I was working with them is don't schedule sex take the scheduled sex away put scheduled time together or scheduled sensuality together or massage, play, touch, kissing, hugging, whatever you want to do, take take the sex out of it. Because when sex becomes a pressure point, it creates anxiety and anxiety can interrupt sexual desire and sexual arousal. Our brain, our mind has the power to literally, you know, cut Mm. our sexual process dead because that back bit of our brain, that limbic system, that really basic bit has then coded sex as something threatening and the last thing that it's going to be trying to get us to do is to lie down and have a nice time and relax and be really aroused because 
it's thinking you're going towards something threatening. The front bit of our brain, the human bit, the frontal cortex understands that we're not under threat. It's our partner, that we love them, that we want to be close to them. But that ancient system is what keeps us alive. And so when sex becomes something pressurized or expectation-based or goal-orientated or all day we're thinking, okay, we said we're going to have sex tonight, but, you know, that's making me quite nervous and I'm feeling quite anxious. We're not going into that sexual, sexual situation feeling calm, relaxed, happy, you know, it doesn't matter what happens, we'll see where it goes. We're setting ourselves up to hit a target and we're going to pass or we're going to fail. Now, the minute we fail once, the next time we're thinking, oh my God, last time it didn't yeah. work. And this is performance anxiety 101 in men. Yeah. And also what we see with things like cancer patients, for example, and it's the same with men who've had prostate cancer, you know, their female partners are really scared about hurting them or what sex might be like, is that they're often scared about hurting their partners. They might not know what's going on or what's going to feel different and they don't want to hurt the person they love. And that can really stress them out and make them feel anxious. And so again, it's this, this kind of, assumption gap so where we don't have the information lots of people might think oh well now I don't turn my partner on anymore they are turned off by the changes that they see they're turned off by me now I've had cancer had surgery had treatment and that is probably not the case in lots of instances but we assume because we don't know and then that creates this this gap between people yeah because again it's if you just define it we put I love it that they put time away because it means they care about each other and they want this to happen and I think that's fantastic I think that's such a fantastic step and if we could reframe then what sex is it might not necessarily mean that he has an erection it could be other things Mm -hmm. right you take that pressure off already sounds a lot more positive and doable and that you feel you've succeeded at having Hug, you know, other time together rather than. And, and that time is a really time. good, nice yeah. thing rather than something that is stressful, anxiety provoking, and they feel isn't working because what they are doing by putting that time aside is intentionally prioritizing a part of their relationship. And that is the most critical factor in successful, happy relationships. <laughs> we prioritize ourselves, our relationship. We initiate time and experiences together we're investing we're nurturing and it doesn't really matter what that looks like but it is an important factor yeah so I guess they're doing a lot of right things already right Mm -hmm. from list from just reading out that message I think we've come to the end of our conversation I'm all my brain is buzzing which I absolutely (laughs) love (laughs) Um, have you got anything that you thought I think the last thing for me now, I'd, I'd like to add, I always say menopause and cancer doesn't just affect the person who is going through it. Yeah. And in our family, we lost quite a lot of people to cancer that I was very close to. And so I was on the receiving end, but I also was the cancer patient. And I don't know exactly that one of them was worse. Mm. Sometimes living or being or supporting a loved one, a husband, a family member who's going through cancer can for sure be as difficult as being diagnosed and going through the grueling treatment yourself. Mm. And so for husbands or wives of affected people, 
for them to have changes in their sex life just makes so much sense to me. We're all so affected. Yeah. We're all so wrapped up in it. Even if it's not happening to you physically, it's happening to you. Mm. Um, yeah. yeah, I couldn't agree more. And yeah. I think for me, a really valuable resource is the organization Sex with Cancer. And you should definitely get them on. They're brilliant. And it was a community an organization set up by people with cancer for people with cancer talking about sex and cancer in every way, shape or form mm. for specifically that reason, because they, everyone's experience was why are we talking about absolutely everything else apart from this? Yeah. Thank you for that. Do you want to sum up a few steps <laughs> of how we can, <laughs> How, if we're sitting at home and we don't want it to be the way it is, first thing that we can do to walk away from our conversation, first thing I can do at home, if I'm unhappy with how it is. Take it into your own hands. Don't think that you can't change it. And the simplest way to start changing it is to start opening up your perspective, listen to some podcasts, watch some TED Talks, read a book, follow some sex educators, Start to surround yourself with or introduce people who are talking about these things into things like your, whether it's social media feed or your news feed or your audio books or your podcast, because you'll start to notice how the messages are shifting and you'll start to notice different things and you'll be like, oh, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. Or I've always thought that that was a bad thing, but the last four episodes that I've listened to will say that everyone else is feeling the same that can't be coincidence it's just the little things like that and I think anyone can get themselves sex education self sex education at any point any time any phase of life it's not too late but we don't empower people to think that we think of sex education as something you do at school and that's it close the door done yeah um, a lot of people don't have that so bring sex into your life, but not bringing sex into your life is what you're saying, but bringing the sex conversation in, right? Yeah. Instead of thinking, I have to have sex, bringing the conversation into your horizon, into your life, into your thoughts, into your social media. Mm, because yeah. thinking about sex is the first step to it all. Yeah. How exciting. <laughs> For all of you out there listening, we hope this has broadened your view on what desire sexes and that you feel a little bit less alone because there are hundreds and thousands of people and mm. definitely hundreds of people I speak to and we all feel a similar way at, at you know different points in our lives it's so important to talk about it yeah it really is thank you Kate thank you Danny it's been great chatting I really hope you enjoyed this brilliant conversation with the fantastic Kate Moyle so many things to think about. And I guess for myself, what I am going to dive a little bit deeper into is definitely this, what do I really want and what is a healthy sex life to me at the moment? And not what it was, not what I think society expects from me or other people or my own expectations, almost what is it that I really want and how can I communicate that with my partner? And I think that is a really good place for me to start some real honesty and some thinking. And I like what Kate said, I'm going to bring more sexual conversations into my social media feeds, into, I don't know, the books I read and just open that conversation up for myself. 
and I hope you can do too. And um, yeah, thank you for listening.